Industrial equipment lasts for decades, and the data produced by these machines are invaluable to organizations that rely on them. So what happens when industries that rely on industrial equipment with on-location workers and a limited digital reliance face a pandemic with limited to no travel? Well, they have to transform. I had a CEO of one of the big utilities tell me, given the last discussions he had with his leaders, that it would take five to six years to do digital transformation. When COVID started last year, they did a lot of what they thought would take five years and five weeks, and it worked. Colin Paris is the SVP and CTO of GE Digital, a billion-dollar software division dedicated to creating better outcomes using the immense data produced by industrial machines. At GE, Colin leads software, systems, and analytics teams to push the boundaries of how data can power industrial digital transformation. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Colin explains one of the ways GE Digital is transforming industries with their Digital Twins program. He explains how Digital Twins is helping factories effectively predict the lifetime of machines, maintenance schedules, and predictive optimum yields, all with an eye towards safety to ensure their plants stay up and running. Colin also touches on the importance of gathering data at the edge and the impact that kind of computing will have on operational efficiency. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today, special guest, we have the CTO of GE Digital, Colin Paris. Colin, welcome to the show. Albert, a delight to be here. All right. Yeah, let's start it off. Okay, so I've never heard of GE. No, I'm just playing. Obviously, I've heard of GE. But GE is a massive company, right? GE is absolutely huge. So what exactly is GE Digital? Because there's so many lines of business at GE. We'd love for you know our audience to understand exactly what is the line of business that you oversee as CTO. Okay, so, so if you think about GE, you know we, we do two major things, right? One is we produce these magnificent machines that people are accustomed to, and, and these things help you fly. You know, So we have jet engines, we have a, nu- a number of machines that generate energy, we have a number of machines that actually take the images required for healthcare. What we found is that in every case, the digital transformation over the last 20 years has been affecting all of the industries we're in. So what we do is in addition to putting those digital technologies in those big machines we have, we also realized that we can use those technologies to help other customers. So we created digital GE Digital. So GE Digital has um, capabilities inside of it that really figure out a way to use the industrial data that you have, extract insights from that data using a variety of analytics techniques, including AI, and then introduce those capabilities or the insights you get into workflows, either workflows with humans or workflows in software, to help you deliver more value. So that's what G Digital does, right? You're in the, putting your industrial data to work for you. So it's almost like a professional services arm, right? You are selling the machinery. That's one side of the business for GE. And then your division sells the services or implements the services that helps maximize the technology that you've just implemented. Well, let me add to that. Really, a lo- most of what we do on G Digital side is we sell software. And then we have software, we have services on that software to help customize that software. 
because we realized to actually extract the insights or the data, you needed the software. So we've been building software that served most of the big G businesses. Now we use that as a separate unit and we use that software and those services to extract these insights, to put that data to work. Yeah, give us an idea of how big this line of business is, because when it's rolled up inside of GE, it's a, GE is already a mind-boggling large company. And then, of course, we'll always hear about the Cloud 100, and we get to hear about how fast these software firms are growing. Is there a way you can demonstrate the size, scope, and scale of how much software GE is also writing for its customers? Yeah, we, we, we are roughly, we, we do a little bit about over $1.1 billion worth of revenue a year in terms of software. That's what's in G Digital itself. And we have a backlog itself that's in the one and a half to to $2 billion range. I mean, that's crazy. It's mind boggling, right? Like you think about it, you have your own software division is actually bigger than some of the cloud companies that get a lot of praise. Yeah, but but again, you know, there is a lot of data in these industries and people are trying to find ways to make that data work for them. Yeah, I was hoping you could give us an example of what an implementation looks like. So I didn't know if you could kind of discuss maybe a hardware implementation for a customer and then the software that was needed to, like you mentioned, extract the industrial data so they get maximum value. I think our audience would love to hear how this all plays together. Okay. Well, let me give you an example. Let's start on the energy space, right? And it's not only situations in which we actually sell. So we have these large gas turbines that we um, sell to customers. Also, we used to have an oil and gas business. And so we have these large turbo machines, machines that actually extract oil from out the ground that we've sold to customers. So we will go in and we have a product called APM, right? Asset Performance Management. Mm -hmm. And what that is, is that product takes a lot of the data that you collect from your sensors. And this is data that you'll have there um, that gives you a view of the um, state of the machine. So while operating, all the sensor data comes in, we also look at things like the environment itself. We can take in data, you know, in terms of weather, uh, other types of data. And what we'll do is we'll give you a view on what's the health of that asset. So when you know the health of the asset, the current way it's running, you can do two things. One is that you can project when do I do maintenance, right? Now, that's important for a lot of customers to know because normally maintenance would be assigned, well, you should maintain this asset. You know, say you have a jet in um, a steam turbine or a gas turbine, they would say you should main, maintain this asset every three, four years. But at, since you actually know the current state and the condition of the components in the asset, you know, and you're not using the asset the way that um, it was designed, say that you're using it with renewables and renewables are supplying a lot of the energy, maybe you don't need to maintain it every two years, maybe every three years or four years, or maybe you're using it a lot more now. And rather than wait for two years, it may break, let's maintain it every year. So we look at the state of the asset and we give you insights on when should you maintain this asset. And so you can do that in a way to keep the availability the highest, because that's when you make the money, while making sure that you do the maintenance so it doesn't crash on you. That's one thing. The second thing is performance. We could also show you things like based upon the type of fuel you're using, how much better the performance. We could tune the performance. What's the ratio of air that you have in the system? Or, you know, what's the ratio of types of maintenance you can do to get the performance as high as possible so that you can generate more electricity on the same fuel? So really, it's all about asset health to manage when do you do maintenance and asset health to figure out how can I increase the performance of the assets I have. So those are the kind of things we do. That is, it's awesome to hear about because it was one of those things where 
you would think of people when you know, I think a lot of people when they think of they're going to develop software, they develop software as software products for just general consumption. But in this case, it's very specified to these machines. I'm curious, how do you and your team develop the requirements and the features that need to go into your products? Is it strictly from the engineers that su- support these products? How do you guys assess what features and things to build? Because in a way, you're kind of, I don't know if it's, there's not as much feedback loops, uh, I feel like, you know, from general n- sheer number of customers, and it's a, such a specified application. I'm curious how you, how you guys do that. How do you gather design feature requests? How do you decide what goes in? Uh, what requirements are needed. It's all a fascinating thing since it's such specialized equipment. Yeah, no, no, no that's great insight because what, what you quickly find, so if, if you think about what we're doing here, we do the health of it could be a specific piece of equipment like we just described. Maybe it's a gas turbine or it could be the plant in which maybe the gas turbine is doing well, but you have a number of things like boilers. You have other types of generators that are all required to to have the um, electric plant run as best as possible. So you could be looking at an entire system, or it could be a process. We use the same thing, and we can go inside, for instance, um, inside one of our food and beverage companies and help them with their process because they have the same problem. You're trying to take data, and from that data, you're trying to realize what's the health of your process or your system. And from that, you determine what actions to take. And so there are two ways to do that, if I think about the question you asked me. One is the design itself of, a, of an individual asset can give you enough information because there's specs that come out of that design, and it tells you things like, here's how it should run, here's when you should maintain it, and we can look at what is said against the actual data. So for instance, if the machine is running over the next year and a half, then the temperature sensors should say this, because things wear in the machine, right? So as the things wear down, like the ball bearings or whatever, you might see a rise in temperature. You may see more vibration. You may see increased pressure. So you begin to compare that, given the definition of what is supposed to happen. You can compare how a machine should be as it ages, and then that gives you insights. In some cases, there is no um, manual about a plant itself because you're combining assets from different manufacturers. You have Mm -hmm. a different generator. You have a different boiler. You have different tubing, you have a different gas turbine itself. So there's no way to say what it should be. So what you do then is you would have data when that plant was first commissioned and was running best, and that would be your benchmark. So this is the best it's run. This is how it should run. And what you're now looking at is anomalies. If it normally runs at this temperature, this pressure, this vibration, all of a sudden we see a change. As we see the change, we've got to ask ourselves, what does that change mean? And maybe what we do then is we say, do you have other plants that have been running? Can I compare that to other plants? And the other plants may say, whenever you see this type of change, this is the problem we see. And so GE has spent years collecting data from other plants because we have a large fleet. And we've built these things into certain types of logic or things we call digital twins. And that twin can say, based upon all the other plants I've seen, when this plant that you have, when you see the temperature and the pressure change in this way, it usually means we, this is an early warning on this type of problem, right? And so that's the other way you do it. The other way you do it is that you don't have defined data, but you take a baseline of data that's good and you look for anomalies. Or you take a baseline from some other plant, you look for anomalies there, and that's what you use to actually understand the health and therefore make an action on the risk to maintenance you have or the performance. So it's a number of ways you can gather data and actually get value. 
So give me an idea. Like, does someone that works for you, works in this department, do they need to have, I don't know, like an industrial engineering background on top of a mechanical engineering background on top of computer software development background? Because it sounds it sounds like because you mentioned before, like the mix of equipment that's potentially there. I know you're looking for anomalies, but I didn't know if like, you know, any type of previous background, industry knowledge, domain experience was needed on top of the software uh, development experience. Oh, yeah. No, no. You have um, quite a bit of a mix of skills here. Right. So if I was to simplify it and you think about what I'm doing, what I'm doing is I'm looking at a problem, which is a business operational problem, and I'm changing it into a data problem. And then from that data problem, I get to a data solution, like I can get to an insight. And then from that data solution, I've got to translate it to a business solution. So you need domain experts. There's no doubt about that. And there are a lot of domain experts who know about plants, but they are not the best ones to apply analytics or AI. But what we do is we have them work with some of our top AI folks. And so what they will do is they will translate that business problem with the help of the AI specialist into a data problem. Then with the data problem, the AI guys, the analytics guys go to work and they come up with a solution. Then they work again with the domain specialist and they transform that solution into an operational business solution. So we bring together groups of people with domain skills. So these are the, the mechanical engineers, the thermal engineers. We bring them together with the computer science folks who both know the not, not just the analytics behind it, but how do you actually write software that could compute this thing in a fast enough time? How do you suck in all that data and translate that data in a way that could be used? How do you store that data? You know, and how do you process that data? All of these are computer scientists. And then when you actually get the solution, you're back again with the mechanical engineers, you're back again with the people who are the plant operators, and you have to determine what kind of dashboard would you show them on? So that's the UX guys, the UI guys, and that's how you work. So it's a combination of a variety of domain skills with computing skills, both AI and software development skills. Now, along the way, you get people who actually become a blend of both, which is brilliant. But in many cases, we're putting together these teams because I want the best data guys working and I want the best you know, um, domain guys working together. So it's a combination of things and that's how it usually evolves and that's how it's evolved over the last eight years. Yeah. And you hit on something that was pretty fascinating that I want to, you know, dive into a little bit more. And you talked about like the speed at which this is going to be processed and how you architect a solution that can collect and process this information. Because one of the things I learned about, um, there was a while ago, I was a contractor on, um, for a company that did rock quarry mining. And they explained to me how a lot of their equipment, heavy equipment, and I'm sure you have the same exact thing with GE, is in really remote areas possibly limited connectivity. I don't know if that's still a problem, but like, I'm, I'm assuming it is like out in the middle of like on an oil rig, like there's no, there's no Definitely. <laughs> satellite internet. It can only submit data at such speeds. But you also hinted at another thing, which is when you're talking about these machines operating at industrial scale, speed to identify a problem is critical, right? There's a, the difference between a part failing or a part not failing is probably, you, you know better than me, but I'm assuming it matters, right? Like yeah. identifying the problem earlier obviously matters because if it runs to failure, you could have typically in an industrial use case, if one part fails, it'll typically damage another part. 
Exactly. And, <laughs> and, and more than just the parts, right? You put people's lives in jeopardy, you know, so you're quite right. Yeah. So I was diving into like how, what is the requirements, I guess, to process? You got all this data potentially in remote areas, low connectivity, and you also have the urgency of processing speed because you just hit it at it. It's not only an industrial cost problem, it's also lives could be at stake if one of these parts fails. So how do you guys engineer for that? Those constraints, I guess, is the best way to describe it. How do you engineer for those constraints? What do you look at? What do you try to, and what are some like maybe um, techniques or infrastructure solutions, architecture techniques that you're using to, to account for this? Yeah, and that's a great question. So let's explore that in two dimensions. The first dimension is the one of time, because you correctly said that. Some problems have to be identified in milliseconds, right? If you have a problem inside one of these plants, you know, especially given the plants they are, the smelter plants, in smelter plants, you generate a lot of electricity to actually smelt the metals like aluminum, right? Mm -hmm. This thing is, when you're, when you're smeltering it and you're moving these things around, I mean, you can't afford for these systems to go down because then that, that molten metal solidifies, Real problems. I mean, so there's some things you've got to identify at millisecond intervals. Then there's some things you've got to identify over days. And then there's some things that are in the time scale of years, right? And so what we have, uh, we have a variety of algorithms and processes that look at it in these timeframes. So in terms of the milliseconds, what you have are control systems that run either on the asset or in the plant itself. And what they're trying to do is use analytics that run locally. We call it at the edge. So you may have a, what we call a digital twin. A digital twin, and I'll get into that later, is a sort of living learning model of a system. But it allows you to get early warnings of a problem. It allows you to continuously predict when, you know, what's happening, and it allows you to optimize a system. So at that level of the asset or the plant, that twin might suddenly realize you have a problem right now because maybe what's happening right now, the temperatures are way too high. And because the temperatures are way too high, that's going to affect the performance of this machine or that's going to cause, you know, maybe damage to the blades. And as you say, if that blade liberates or breaks away, that blade could damage a significant part of the other things inside the turbine, or it could actually throw something outside and hurt a human being that's in the plant. Yeah. That's got to react in milliseconds. Then you have things that, that are over the course of days. Like, for instance, you could begin to realize that it's, that's, uh, it's summertime and it's very hot. And so you're going to have to generate more electricity because the weather forecast is telling you that, you know, over the next couple of days, you know, you're going to have a heat wave coming in. So now you have to actually make a decision of how should I actually tune or adjust the machine such that it could generate the maximum amount of power over many days you know, um, without damaging the machine in certain ways. So that's over a multi-day, week horizon or whatever else. And then you have cases in which now you're looking at the fact that because of renewables, you know, people are adding things like solar and wind, which means the gas generator, the gas power generator doesn't stay on as long. So maybe that only comes on and off at night or at times when you don't have enough renewable electricity. What's the damage going to be to that over the course of the next two years? Because that could determine when I repair it. So in each case, we have analytics that actually does things at the millisecond level, day level, or predict things at the year-long level. And in each case, you're going to respond to that in a very different way. 
And so a lot of what we do is we work with systems that imagine trying to compute these things fairly fast. In some cases, you've got to compute it at the edge. Some cases, you can compute it in the cloud. In some cases, you got to compute both. Because if I use up, if I do things and I uh, dramatically increase how I generate power over the next two weeks because of a hot spell, it could actually use up some of the parts inside because some of the parts inside are limited life parts because of all the heat. And so it may mean that instead of having to do a maintenance action two years down the road, I maybe needed needed to do it uh, seven months earlier. So all of these things interact in funny ways. So it's a very complex operation where we're looking at all these time scales and all the interactions between them and getting the analytics to resolve that. Now, super fascinating stuff. I'm curious if you could kind of share a little bit of just how how remote do customers use these products? Because like these, the data constraints is a serious thing. I mentioned like oil rigs out in the middle of the ocean, but I'm sure GE parts. I mean, there's probably GE parts in Antarctica right now that you're 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 monitoring. Yeah, I, and you know, and COVID made that um, even worse in some cases, right? Because you won't even allow to go in and do repairs to. Uh, we have a uh, many sites that are in the Middle East, uh, sites that are in Australia. You can't go in and repair these things. So what we find is that many of these things are in remote locations. You look at renewables right now, wind farms. Wind yeah. farms are going to be in places that, you know, you have the most wind or solar farms in places where you have the, the most sun. So these are remote sites. Yeah, middle of the desert. <laughs> exactly. Best place yeah. to put them. Right? <laughs> the other thing is you find these power plants, many of the power plants, because they make noise and they produce, you know, smoke and everything else, you don't want them next to, you know, cities and residential communities. So they're fairly far away as well. So you have in all of these cases, and then you, you quite like, rightly pointed out the oil and gas too. Many of them are in remote locations, right? So we have a number of them in which we are pulling data. Now the question is, do you need to send all the data across? Or can you do some processing at the edge locally, right? And then when you get anomalies, you send those anomalies towards the cloud or towards the control centers. And that's what you see. It's a blend of processing and having capabilities at the edge, you know, to control things quickly. That's the other reason for the edge, the latency. And then for some things, you know, that you think are, are really problematic things, then you send information back to the cloud or to the command center and they look at it. So it's a combination of how you balance what you have at the edge and in the cloud in, in the way you do the work. And that's something that we're, we're living with now and growing because many people have seen, you know, the great thing about what occurred I had a CEO of one of the big utilities tell me, um, you know, he thought, given the last discussions he had with his leaders, that it would take five to six years to do digital transformation. When COVID started last year, they did a lot of what they thought would take five years and five weeks. And it worked. Because <laughs> they didn't have really options, I guess, right? You, like you mentioned. And everybody understood the risk. And so it wasn't a demand to be 100% perfect. There should be no safety problems, but could you get 80% right, right? And we saw it did work. And so now, and, and it worked in some cases at higher productivity. So now the question is, can you continue doing it? Yeah. You know, you hit on, you hit on something that was pretty interesting. And I wanted to ask you, you know, with all the, like, for example, your, your example of renewables and how they're going to be in further, further remote places. And then there's obviously increased data requirements for your software applications to run. This is also I mean GE Digital is its own hardware company where it makes the hardware like servers and 
chipsets and you know how similar to how Apple is now making its own chips. Do you have to do that for the, your equipment that needs to be placed in remote places? Yeah, we, we generally don't do that. Um, what we do is we rely on, you know, um, pre-made components out there. Now, gotcha. And then, now there are people. So, for instance, if you look at G Renewables, right, because they're the ones building these large wind turbines, what they may use is they may use someone's chips, but they create uh, special, you know, silicon on a chip boards, SOC boards because they have to process a lot of data. So while the chip may be fine to use an AMD or an Intel chip or an NVIDIA chip, what you do need, though, is the rate of data that's coming in, especially time series data, you may need to process that differently. So we may, need, we may use specialty ASICs you know, to actually manage that data flow. And then you know, once you get the data right, because you need to actually process that data at certain speeds, then we use a regular chip. So they are the ones usually who work with, you know, um, some of the specialty teams that put together these um, chipsets that you need together with the well-known um, general microprocessors you have out there and then harden them. Because the other part about it is that you can't just use a normal, you know, processor. It has to be hardened in a certain way because there are more vibrations, there's heat, there's dust, there's a number mm-hmm. of things out there. There's extreme conditions of of cold. Mm-hmm. So that's what you tend to find. So what we do in G Digital is we make the assumption that you have a source collecting that data. And what we do is we aggregate that data and then we use a variety of AI techniques, digital twins, industrial AI, to generate the insights. So here's what is an early warning. Here's what we predict will happen. Here's how best to optimize. And then we integrate that back into the workflow. Then we can give you, um, you know, a prescription. Here are three alternatives you would suggest. And so now the human can say, ah, okay, that's three things you'd suggest. These make sense. Let me do number one. And then we augment the workflow. So if this is the right workflow to get a technician out there, we send it to an SAP system. Is this the right actions to take? We send it to a control system. And so those are the kind of things we do. We get in the middle of the workflow. We understand, get the insights from the data, understand what's going on. Here's the right actions. Dispatch it onto a workflow and automate that flow as easily as possible. And then, you know, one of the things now that you, you know, you're talking about all these things, and then I'm starting to think about like, what about how many products you have to then support? So, you're, you know, you're the CTO of G Digital. You're supporting, you know, it's not like Google, where Google will come out and say like, hey, we're no longer going to support a phone that's two years old. Because that's what they kind of do, you know what I mean? They're saying, yeah, well, the phone's too old. But I know in industrial applications, these machines last decades or can can last decades if they are well-maintained. Yes. So you're talking about software. So do you retro-write software for old machines? Or how do you guys how do you guys choose what to invest your time and energy in, I guess is what I'm saying, is because in any given customer base, there's going to be install of hardware. And that hardware can age. And that's the range is going to be huge, I think, for GE. How do you choose what to support, what not to support? Like this is pretty intense decision-making, I feel like, on your part. Yeah, it, it is, right? Because if you look at the things we look at, so the average um, lifetime of a jet engine is 40 years. <laughs> it's crazy. Gas turbine is 30 years, a steam turbine 30 years, wind turbine 20 years. However, I mean, the oldest steam turbine that I know of is 82 years old. In fact, it sits in the Northeast with another fleet of about 16 steam turbines and the youngest is 61. So these things last a long time because again, this is not about how you look, right? It's not aesthetics. This is, is it running? Functionality, is it generating power? That's it. And so, yes. And so we do have situations in which 
the data structures out there are quite old. And so we have much older connectors. And this is what you need your services business for, because when you need to go update that, there are things that, you know, we will keep in service because you've paid for custom software to do custom things to keep that in service. And if you do the value equation, it makes total sense to do that, right? Because to build a new one, to get the permitting and to rebuild that is huge. Yeah. And so it may make a lot of sense to just do some custom software. The biggest problems now that you face really are two things, really. One is this whole notion of decarbonizing the world, right? So you've got to manage the carbon footprint of some of these assets. And the second that you always worry about is um, cyber. Now, everybody has a third, which is productivity. You want to do more with less, but those first two are dominant, mm-hmm. right? The decarbonization and the potential cyber threats that you have. And so those are the ones that you, you know, we find customers look at all the time. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. I, if you would have asked me to stack rank those three things, I would have assumed productivity is number one. But now that I'm thinking of some of the conversations we've had with, you know, CISOs, yeah, they're, they're talking about how like the, the biggest threats now or the biggest things that people are always concerned about is like, it, you know, obviously if something is connecting to the cloud, then that means something from the cloud can connect to it and therefore take over or shut it down. Or, and in your case, that's a serious threat. Talk about how you guys approach security. Yeah, this is, um. so just to be clear, of those three things, the keyword is and, A-N-D. Oh, yeah. You've got to do all three, right? So Not, all, not or, yeah, exactly. It's, and. <laughs> it, it's an and, right? And so, <laughs> and so when you look at things like cyber, you know, so there's some direct things, right? So for instance, there is the usual IT part of cyber, which is, you know, you're going to use CrowdStrike, you're going to use whoever else you choose to use to, to manage your networks and your endpoints, right? So usually you have an endpoint there, which is a, some kind of a box, an edge server, people use laptops. So you've got to protect that anyway. That's basic IT security you've got to have, as well as network security. Then there's OT security. OT meaning operation technology security. What can we use on our machines itself that could detect that this is a bad command or somebody has you know, hacked a sensor and those sensor readings don't make sense. And so we have a number of um, techniques we use, and there are a number of techniques as well that are right now being explored in which we can understand the relationships between sensors and control signals because we've designed it. So if we've designed this um, gas turbine and the gas turbine has these four sensors and we know with the kind of fuel we have inside of it and the, the um, temperature at which this burns, if, if two of the sensors are saying five, 600 degrees, the other one can't say 10 because that justifies the laws of physics on the planet. And so there are things you can do using you know, operations technology in order to detect if someone has hacked you. Right. And then the third thing that you've got to worry about then is just um, physical access. What if a person walks in and decides to override the system? Right. Uh, now you've got to look at the control centers themselves and determine who can do what, who has the ability to do um, certain commands when certain commands are issued and those commands could be prob- um, problematic. There should be two or three levels of review or authorization before they can actually be done. And so there are a number of steps that you can put in place to safeguard against these things. And yeah, we're working on, on quite a few of those, but it's a difficult, um, it's always a difficult thing to do. It's really hard to sell security. 
most people don't see the value of it until they, they get hurt. And remember, not of it is not just damage to the equipment. A lot of it right now is ransoms. Yeah. So I will basically go in, I will then um, take control of your system, and then I will encrypt key data. You leave it there and you encrypt it. So now it's there and someone will tell you, well, you've got to pay to have it decrypted. And, you know, you know, you'd need that data. I mean, in the next couple of days or whatever else, because maybe they've locked up your billing databases or they've locked up your operational databases. And so you pay for them to give you the decryption key. So these are things that are very real right now. And they are, you know, mounting. Yeah, I'm just, I'm trying to. I'm trying to conceptualize what your day looks like. Uh, <laughs> give us, give our audience a picture. So you come into work, you sit down or, you know, you start up your computer. What happens? Like what, what are some of the things that get come across your desk? It seems like, you know, from version control, developing software, supporting industrial machines, collaborating with engineers. Like it's pretty, it's pretty extensive. All the things GE digital does. Yeah, well, 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 me personally, I have really two jobs. So one job is I'm the CTO of G Digital. And so what I'm looking at really are technologies that could either increase the value of our product, current products for customers, or I'm looking at new technologies and new markets we should be going into. Because we're in an energy transition, mm-hmm. right? Where the entire planet is changing, right? And that's one job, right? Yeah. And then the second job is I'm also an officer of the GE company. And so I am involved in digital transformation for all of the GE businesses, for the GE aviation business, the gas power and renewable businesses. So I wear two hats. Now, the good thing is that while I'm working on the digital transformation of the GE businesses, I'm looking at how I can use data there to improve the value that we deliver to our customers and to improve our own value. Right. And some of the things I'm looking at, because I'm intimately in the middle of these massive GE businesses, some of those give me insights. And some of the things we build here are perfect for me to take and bring across inside GE Digital. And we can sell those to customers outside as well, because the customers have the same problems, because the customers themselves may want to increase the operations, the use data properly in operations so that they can increase the cash flow or increase the productivity of their people. So I have this really interesting, you know, um, duality of jobs that allows one to feed off the other in really interesting ways. So I spend a lot of time looking at both sides of the equation. And then the rest of it is functional time. You know, I'm, I'm looking at talent. I'm looking at culture. I'm looking at, so for instance, this thing called the energy transition. Yeah. Most people look at that. That to me, um, before I was a GE I was a G for eight, I've been a G for eight years. I was at IBM for 20 years. And so I was part of the transformation in which you had the internet and the digital world sweep all the other industries. Energy right now is doing the same thing. Energy is vital, not just for electricity, but also for manufacturing. It's vital for agriculture. And so the same energy transition where we have to decarbonize the world is going to affect every industry. And so it's a very interesting combination of how digital is changing the world and at the same time, energy is changing the world. And I'm in the middle of both of them. So it's, a, it's an exciting day. Yeah. And give us an idea of like what some of the big goals are. I mean, we all know, um, we've all heard how fast the Earth's climate is changing. We've had some guests on our show talk about some of the things that they're doing, you know, from crop science to uh, different 
you know, battery technologies, you know, you're at the forefront, you're at the energy production level, which is crazy, right? And energy, energy consumption, but energy is, you know, one of the leaders in energy production. Where do you see the next five years going? Because this is, like you said, there's global demand. Everyone is racing for this. What are some of your guesses as to what's going to happen over the next five years in regards to how energy is going to, as a society, how are we going to create energy going forward? You see, this one, this one is a really complex question. So let, let, me, let me share some of the complexities I, I struggle yeah. with here. So in one dimension, we spend a lot of time looking at the, electric, the, the electricity utilities and saying, how do we decarbonize them? Yep. But when you look around the world, a lot of carbon is generated in the auto industry, cars, right? You know, a lot of carbon is generated when you do heavy manufacturing. A lot of carbon is generated when you do agriculture, it's generated in buildings, heating buildings, heating houses. So it's not one industry. Yeah. And some of the solutions, you know, are interesting. So, you know, a solution like Tesla. Okay, that's a electric vehicle, right? So it, it, instead of actually, you know, heating, uh, using fuel, which produces carbon, I actually will use electricity. They have heat pumps. They're now mandating in the UK that to heat your home, you're going to use a heat pump, which uses electricity to generate that heat. Okay. But to get that electricity, you're back into the, you have to get electric power. And so now that electric power, you know, generates carbon. So you're displacing, you're going from one problem and you're saying, I'm going to move shifting the problem. Yeah, you're moving it down the chain. Exactly. And so now you got to get that balance. Now, the next thing is while you have that, you say to yourself, okay, if that's true, then maybe we need to put more investment, right, in this um, generation of clean power, maybe build more batteries, build more hydro plants, even try nuclear again, because nuclear is carbon free. In order for anyone to put investments, you have to build a market. Because the way it works is that a business actually will invest billions of dollars, which is what it is for this infrastructure, if they think they can make money. And so now that means you've got to maybe, you know, deregulate some of these markets. So now the government has to step in and say, well, here's another way to make money. Because in many cases, you have quite a few of these utilities, they have monopolies in the areas they're in, or there are certain set ways of making money. So now the government has got to come in and deregulate these markets. So the government shows up. At the same time, you also want to maybe get more transmission lines. If you look at what went on in Texas, they didn't have enough transmission lines coming in so you can bring power. So transmission lines means you've got to, okay, I've got to dig up certain tracts of land. I've got to actually build these large towers and the communities are against that. And so now you have an interesting combination of these industries changing. Electricity may or may not be the answer. Government regulations coming in to get the right level of investment and communities coming together to make this happen. And you've got to do this across all 256 countries in the world to make a dent. So this is why this thing becomes a really problematic you know, situation, a problem for our times. Now, even when you do that, digital is at the heart of everything. It's very interesting. So in order to make a market for investments, you have to give price signals. How you get price signals is by trying to understand who wants electricity at what price and allowing them to buy to that price. Oh, if I have the electricity, how do I generate it? So a lot of that is data that has to be gathered and processed. If I want to actually understand, you know, where's the best place to lay these lines, I've got to do a lot of simulation 
so that when I lay the lines, they affect the most amount of people for the good of society. A lot of data, a lot of simulations has to happen. Everywhere I look in this problem, there's a huge amount of data that needs to be gathered, a huge amount of things that needs to be processed. So this is why I really believe there's a massive tie between the energy and the digital transformation on the planet. And, and, so, and so you asked me, Albert, where do you begin? I think you begin with what you have. Right now, our grids themselves are 35% utilized on average. Really? How do I use data to actually increase that utilization? So maybe I don't need as much energy to do the things I have to do. That's the first step, right? Second step, how do I experiment with various market structures so that I can get you know, the people to see the value to them, maybe, you know, in a community, there'll be more jobs. So I can say, all right, why don't you run these wires here for this point of time? Maybe I can get people to invest because I can show them how they can make money so you can invest in batteries. Again, that takes a lot of digital capabilities. So I think a lot of it is going to be around how do we work with what we have to make it better? And then how do we actually figure out the ways to incentivize this so it's good for the communities, it's good for the investors, it's good for the operational people, and it's good for the world. It's complicated to begin with, no doubt about it. And the way you describe it, I love the way you approach it in like a very finite, like, hey, this is a small, this is the point I would start the attack. That's why you're in charge, man. You're going to solve this for us. (laughs) No, we we are. We are. We are, Albert. You're going to tell the people about it and they're going to want to hear more about it. And so we collectively are going to do it. No, I love it. Collective problem. I love it. I'm a, a big, long proponent of the environment. You know, say whatever you want. I, I, I'm always encouraged by, and I get excited by hearing these different investments people are making to solve big, complicated problems. So it's really exciting to hear some of the, like, you know, obviously the scope and scale at which GE can play its part, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're glad about that. The, the thing about it is that if you don't solve the problem, I mean, you know, you may not have a, a planet as well, and we've only got one. There are no redundancies here. So I, I fully agree with you. Exactly. Well, Colin, it was awesome having you on the show. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round mm. is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Colin, this is where we ask you questions about your life outside of GE so our audience can get to know you better. Okay, sure. And I'll, ask, I'll answer them quickly. Lightning round. There you go. Colin, have you ever done voice work? Because you sound kind of like a radio personality, a movie personality. I mean, I feel like y- you could do voice work. <laughs> well, thank you for the compliment. I have not done voice work at all. <laughs> if anyone wants to hire Colin, give me a call. I'm going to be his agent. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Talk a little bit about who were you as a little kid? Because you went to school for a lot of engineering. Were you always interested in engineering and science as a child, or did that come later on when you got to college? You know, I'll tell you, I, I was always interested as a child, right? You know, I, I grew up, as you can tell from the accent from in Trinidad, so I always loved science, right? What turned me around was college. I went to Howard University, a historically black college. And what was interesting then is that, you know, you have this thing in which they give you one of these things called a breadboard. It's just a board with a bunch of connections where you could push in wires. And they said, go build you know, one of these burglar alarms. And so you connected these transistors and the wires and the resistors to LEDs. And then when you looked at it, it was like you had 200 wires all coming together, you know, and when you pulled up one wire, so you pretended that somebody opened a window, it should have an LED flash. This thing takes 35 hours to build. And then if you move it and one wire shifts, it doesn't work. 
Then the next class, they came and they gave me a microprocessor. This was in the early 80s, right? And this microprocessor, this eight, you know, a simple 8-bit microprocessor with about 20 wires. And rather than take 35 hours of time, it took me about four hours and I could build the same thing. And I was sold. That was my personal experience of digital transformation. And I've never looked back. I joined IBM. We were transforming banks because money and bits are the same thing. We transformed retail. We transformed healthcare. And then I joined GE where I'm transforming aviation, transforming power. This is the journey. And the next thing we'll transform, I'll tell you, is space because that's the next human adventure. You're from Trinidad. Is that, yes. did I catch that correctly? Yep, yep, that's right. Now, when you were, when you came to the Americas, what did your family think you were going to go study when you came to the America, when you came to Howard? No, I came to study engineering. I came to study engineering, you know, and I, and I stayed. It's just that at that time, computer science was even something. It was now coming up. Gotcha. And so I started engineering at um, um, Howard University. And then I went on to Berkeley to do my master's and PhD there and studying, you know, computer science. So it's been the same journey for me, right? It's a journey of passion. And I haven't been disappointed. Every time, you know, you think you, you've seen it, this digital thing takes another turn. All right. And based on your LinkedIn profile, it says you're based in the Boston area. Is that accurate? Yes, I'm on my way to Boston. You know, I was planning to move there fully. I'm going to be there in the next couple of months. Okay, now I got to ask. So you're moving there? Yes, I'm moving there. Where do you currently reside? Currently, right now, I'm in Pennsylvania. Now, let me ask you something. Do you miss Trinidadian food? Like, is that available where you are? Yeah, well, you know, I, my, my wife is Trinidadian, and so it is readily available. But I do. I do. And I, I mean, the thing I miss the most, I'll tell you, you know, um, what I spent a lot of time doing was sort of surfing and hanging out to the beach. And so those very cold days up here, I miss it tremendously. You know, when you could, you could feel the heat, you could go surf, and time goes slower there. There you go. And I want to ask final question because, you know, we're, the world's going to start opening up. People are going to go on vacation again. It's going to be getting exciting. If we were to go to Trinidad, give us your recommended day. What should we do if we go there? Uh, well, if you were to go Carnival, Carnival is a great oh. time. Always a good time, you know? <laughs> Always a good time. Colin, I appreciate you joining us today on the show. Thanks for sharing an inside look at GE Digital. It's fascinating to hear some of the problems that you guys are tackling. And, uh, you know, it was awesome. I think our audience is going to really enjoy it. Albert, thank you for the opportunity here. It was, a, it was a delight talking to you. Let me know whenever you need me. I'd love to come back. I'd love to continue sharing this news on this beautiful medium you have. Thank you again. Oh, much appreciated. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.